of your spirit uh, would bring fruit from it uh, into our lives. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. And uh, could you please turn back with me to James chapter 2? James chapter 2, once again, can I say welcome uh, to all of you? Add my welcome to that of Chris. It's good to see everybody here. James chapter 2 on page 1216, if you're using the church Bibles. It'd also be helpful to have this outline in front of you uh, that you received as you came in. James chapter 2, page 1216. Can everybody hear me clearly? Okay. Now, English is a strange language, isn't it? Strange people brought it here, so imagine it's a strange language. It is. There's no apple in pineapple. There's no egg in eggplant. Blackboards are green. Quicksand works very slowly. And boxing rings are square. A writer writes, and a stinger stings, but fingers don't ping. Grocers don't gross, and hammers don't ham. And if the plural of tooth is teeth, shouldn't the plural of boot be beef? English is an inconsistent language. Now, inconsistencies of language may not be significant, unless you're trying to learn it, and then it's a great pain. But inconsistencies in life are. Christians must act like Christians. Our words and deeds must be consistent with the gospel that we profess. Real faith works. If we really trust God, then some things will be different in our lives. And if we're just like the world, that maybe we don't really trust God. If we're not really Now, James deals with these issues in great detail in the second half. We'll be looking at it next week, but before he reaches that point, he builds up to it by ways of example, showing us how to be consistent. And the example that he shows us today is about how we treat our fellow believers. And the main point James is making here is this. We must not show partiality in our dealing with each other. We must not show partiality in our dealing with each other. If we do that, we would not be consistent with faith in Jesus. He says it straight out by uh, command in verse 1 of chapter. He says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of Partiality means making unjust distinctions between people by treating one person better than another based on external criteria. Unjust distinctions between people, treating one person better than another based on external And James says we cannot do that while holding faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he illustrates that for us by giving us a hypothetical example. In this example, it's Sunday morning. Church is gathering like this, and two different men come in for the meeting, the assembly. 
And the first man, verse 2, he's wearing a gold ring, like this, and fine clothing. Now, nowadays, if you see a man with a gold ring, what does it mean? It means he's married, isn't it? I mean, that's all it means. Uh, back in those days, having a gold ring made, he, made means that he was really rich. In fact, you could tell the social status of a person by the quality of his gold ring. Now, maybe it's a bit like nowadays people conclude something about your social status um, by the kind of car you drive. So, if you turn up in a flashy new Mercedes or a BMW, then you know, you're one of the people who's made it in the world. You've got an equivalent of this gold ring. So, the first guy who comes in, he's a rich man. He's probably one of the small group of people who actually owns land in Palestinian society. The rest have got to live off. But not only has he got a gold ring, but he's also got fine clothes. In fact, the word in the Greek is literally shining. His clothes are so cool that they're, they're radiant. He's wearing his Louis Vuitton. And he's just taken off his Ray-Bans and put them in the same pocket as his Mont Blanc. And his left arm is his Rolex Oyster. And his shoes and his belts are matching Gucci. And even his underwear is Calvin Klein, which you wouldn't know. The funny thing is, he doesn't look overdressed. Looks good. Neat. Fun. He's a pillar of society. He's the kind of guy that you want to have near your home. Bring up the property. He's the kind of guy that you want to have in your church. Intelligent, responsible kind of The kind of person who if he was saved, would make an excellent and useful Christian. Make a great contribution in evangelism. He'd be a walking advertisement for Christianity. He's the kind of person you'd like to be as your warden, or, or at least be on your council. Put make generous donations to your building fund. Never forget the, the yellow box at the back. Man, full of potential for God's kingdom. You want to do a good welcoming job with him, wouldn't you? Maybe this is his first time at church. Want to make him feel comfortable, especially if he's a visitor. He's obviously used to being treated with special respect and special attention. It's only right to do it. Welcome! Glad to have you at our church. Here's a good seat. And then another man comes. Stu tells us that he's a poor man. In fact, the word poor there could, could also be translated as beggar. His clothes are shabby. In fact, they're filthy. Of course, they are. Uh, beggars got their washing machines and dryers, and if they wash my hand, then what's he going to wear while it's dry? And so we have a beggar in filthy clothes, which means that he smells. He's come to the meeting. Well, it's a bit Probably going to ask people for money. I disrupt the meeting. After all, it's someone who's used to sitting down and listening to Bible readings and sermons. It might put people off. It, it might put off other visitors like our special guest, the man in the shining clothes, and they, they might get a bad impression of our church. I don't want to come back. You want to have this guy in a prominent position, not a good advertisement. And what about the owners of the house in which we meet? Early church men in people's houses, too. Probably don't want him on the furniture. Oh, please. One's a little bit uncomfortable. 
secretly wish he hadn't come. Too polite to say so. Ah, not that it mischief thing. But we can be firm with him. He knows his place. Doesn't get away with being too destructive. Some ushers might ask him to sit on the floor by their feet. Maybe possibly appropriate for someone at his level. But I will just tell him to stand over there. So he's in the gathering, but he's not where the good seats are, where he could distract other people. Friends, sin always sounds reasonable to one being tempted. What's wrong? Have a look at verse 3. We'll start with verse 2. For a man with a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil words? Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil words? It's the first thing that's wrong with partiality. We make distinctions among ourselves based on human criteria. Our judgment is wide off the mark. In our mind, we've just created two classes of people. Those who are desirable and those who are not. Man with a gold ring and shining clothes, he's in the desirable. The man in filthy clothes, he is not. And we have divided the church based on our perverted judgments and not God's. And so verse 4 tells us we have become judges with evil thoughts. We're judges with sinful reasoning. Our mental processes are all wrong. We are basing our decisions not on how God sees things, but on how the world sees things. We're impressed by all kinds of things that impress people in the world. The, the gold ring, the flashy, flashy clothes. And are meant to be serving a God who isn't impressed with them. Because God isn't influenced, is he? By power dressing and status And God doesn't care how much someone could potentially contribute to his cause, either financially or because of their state, personality. Everything that anybody has comes from him anyway. He owns it all. Deuteronomy 10.17 says, The Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of laws, the great and mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no He's unconcerned about what the rich man could potentially contribute to him as he is about the poor man ruining his reputation. In fact, he would rather save a poor man who comes to him with nothing than a rich man who thinks he can contribute to God. I always cringe when I hear people say, I wish so-and-so would become a Christian because he'd be such a great Christian, such a great witness, he'd make such a great contribution to the cause of Christ if only he became a Christian. As if God needed this. God chooses people to be saved, not because they can help him, but entirely out of his will. He chose us not so not because we can further his cause, but so that he could show us his kindness. And many of the people God chooses are people whom the world considers 
and foolish pride. And so when James looked at the churches he was writing to, he saw many poor. They weren't all poor, many were. And he was talking about that when he says in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom whom he has promised to those who are poor believers, the weak, brothers and sisters, were actually very rich. Even though they were poor in the eyes of the world, God had chosen them to be rich in faith. And the ones whom God has chosen to be rich in faith, whether they're rich or poor in the eyes of the world, are the ones who inherit the kingdom. They're the ones who will rule with Christ, who will possess the new heavens and the new earth. They're the ones with true wealth, who really do have everything. And by discriminating against them, the people whom James was scolding were not only despising the choice of God, but they were blind to the spiritual realities which God's choice brings. Imagine the, the richest, most powerful man that you could think of. I don't know if it's Bill Gates, or Brunei, or someone else you can have in your mind. Think of them in all their splendor. Oh, Bill Gates doesn't look particularly spectacular. So just imagine any billionaire, best clothes, got a posh car or Learjet, whatever people have. Put that image there. And on the other side, get the image of a refugee who has fled a terrible situation in Africa. Is there much difference between the two? Well, superficial. You get rid of all the traffic to the Egypt and all There's a bit of difference, but not that big, is it? Just human beings. It's flesh and blood and bones like us. Their own hopes and fears and aspirations. It's just like we do. Oh, if you give me the choice, I want to be a go the But imagine the billionaires not trusting in Jesus. They did not have to Imagine the penniless refugee. That God has chosen him to be rich in faith. Now, who would you rather be? Not a hard question, is it? If it is, let me fast forward you fifty years, maybe a hundred years, a thousand years, a million years. Billionaire who rejects the gospel. He is in hell. The refugee from Darfur, whom God has chosen to be rich in is with him in glory. Now, which one would you rather be? C.S. Lewis wrote that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and corruption such as now you such as if you've met it now, such as now you meet, if at all, only in the night. That is, you can't even imagine now, but the difference between the poor man and the rich man, now, not much difference. But then, an incredibly vast The difference between the penniless, doubtful refugee and the billionaire in this life may be 
tiny. But compared to the difference in eternity, Friends, if God has chosen someone to be rich in to inherit his kingdom, be with him forever, have all the glories of the new heaven and new earth, they are far richer than Sodom Brunei and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett all put together. Which is, by the way, why the term net worth is such a stupid word. The world says take your assets and minus your liabilities and that's your net worth. He said a man's life is not in abundance of his possession. Net worth has got nothing to do with assets and liabilities. Everything to do with the fact that you were created by God in his image. That you were redeemed by the blood of his son. That you have an inter- internal inheritance for you waiting in heaven that can never perish or spoil or fade. And if you belong to Jesus and that belongs to you, and no matter how rich or poor you are from the world's point of view, you inherit the kingdom. That word. That is a great honor. Now the people who show partiality don't, don't realize it. And they do not honor the poor man who is rich in the kingdom. Verse 6, uh, James says, You have dishonored the poor man. We have treated the, the poor beggar as if he was less than the rich man in shining clothes. We have dishonored him. We have Follow the world's way of thinking instead of God's way. And it's not just the poor believer who will be insulted if we treat with disrespect. It's God who will be insulted as well. Proverbs 17.5 says, He who mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. Because this man is made in his image, redeemed by his blood, has an eternal inheritance that money can't Chosen by God to be his very own. And we discriminate against him because the other ones The gold ring, the dazzling clothes, are they better than the eternal blessings of God? Is the greatest Ferrari more valuable than knowing God? Is the flashy designer clothing more important than God's gracious God? Because we must not judge by other appearances. We judge someone based on outward appearances and judges with evil things. Remember to look at people with the eyes of people. Steam our brothers and sisters according to their true words. Truth. Treat them without passion. Now James anticipates a problem with this argument. And when he wrote this letter, many Jews believed that riches were a sign of God's favor. Rich people were rich because God was especially pleased with them. Now, you think about that, if God gives special honor by making them rich because he's pleased with them, then, well, maybe it's appropriate that we give them special honor as well. Maybe it's okay to show partiality because it's honoring those whom God is honoring. And James wants to see that it possibly cannot be. He debunks his theory that if you're rich, it means God is pleased with you by pointing out the people who are persecuting Christians were themselves. The second half of verse 6. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you to court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? And the answer he expects is, is yes. The people who are doing all those terrible things who are persecuting Christians, 
They were rich people. It's obvious that God's not pleased with people who oppress his people and blaspheme his name. So riches cannot automatically be the sign that God is on your side, can it? Having riches does not necessarily mean that you are God's special friend. And so this, this prosperity theory is wrong. So you cannot justify, you cannot use it to justify giving special honor to the rich. Partiality is forbidden. Everything. Partiality is wrong, but is it serious? Is it an important thing? Or is it just a, a minor issue? James answers by partiality. If you really will, let us trust. However, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing it. Talk about partiality in verses 2 to 7 on one hand, and love in verse 8 on the other. Look, they're not consistent. We're not loving the poor man. And we show partiality against him. We are dishonoring him. We're not loving the rich man when we show partiality for him. Because, well, our respect for him isn't because he's precious to God, but because he's rich. That's not loving. We're not treating him well. We're trying to use him so that we or our church can benefit from him. Jesus, James says, we keep the royal law. Love your name. As yourself, we will be doing well. Be doing what? We treated both the rich man and the poor man with love. Why we we'd want to be treated in that situation, and we'd be keeping the law. Going partial, be grateful. And verse nine is written: If you show partiality, you are committing sin, and are convicted by the law. It's transparent. Is it a significant sin? Well, adultery is a major sin. Murder is a huge sin. Telling one guy to sit here, another guy to stand there. If we committed murder or adultery, our conscience would remind us about it for years. Reality, we'd probably forget about it ten minutes later. Friends, look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and fails at one point has become accountable for all of them. Now, that's not saying that every sin is as serious as every other sin, or that every sin deserves the same punishment, but it is saying that every time you or I break those commandments, we're not just breaking a commandment. Well, we are breaking the law. Or one way of thinking about it is thinking like commandments have got a, like a link on a chain. You break one link, the chain is broken. Or even better way of thinking about it is to say that all the commandments are expression of God's character, which is fundamentally that of love. And the commandments are specific ways of fulfilling that law of love, showing God's character of love. Adultery is always inconsistent with love. So God says, do not commit adultery. It's not loving to murder someone. God says, do not murder. 
be breaking different commandments, but they're both violations of the same royal law in the Well, it comes from the heart of God, the character of God, the love. And so verse 11, he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor. James has already shown us that showing favoritism is also a violation of the same. It goes against the command to love. It goes against the character of God. And just like adultery and murder, every time we do it, we're saying to God, God, I don't care what you, what you say, I'm not going to love. I'm not going to obey. And so those showing favoritism at one level may not be as bad as adultery or murder, but at another level it is very much just as much a violation of the law of love, that, that royal law that James talked about, is just as much a going against God as just as much an insult to him as the others. When we show favoritism, we are slapping him in the face and rebelling against his law of love. Now, when we realize how the law works, then we also realize how inadequate we As long as we think that it's about murder and adultery, then most of us think we're okay. When we realize the law is about love, we know we fail, and we keep failing to keep the law, then we are. Thank God that we're not saved by obeying the law. Because if salvation came through law, and if by breaking one commandment we're guilty of it all, then we'd have no hope. We're thankful that we're saved for what Jesus did on the cross. Because he's the one who kept the law perfect. He's the one who truly loved us. Truly loved us. He truly loved his enemies. We were his enemies. And Christ died for us. And he who has kept the law on the cross took the curse for those who have He took our sin, our punishment. Gave us his righteousness, his perfect keeping of the law, so that if we trust him, we can be forgiven and let our guilt be free. And freed from the punishment of the law. Mercy calls out for forgiveness. Law calls out for our judgment. And at the cross, we see God's perfect judgment and his great mercy. And we see how Jesus in the cross satisfies the judgment of God's law on our sins. And enables us to be forgiven while justice is maintained. In Christ's judgment and mercy meet. And because of Christ, we receive mercy. And so as James says at the end of verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. But in the first half of that verse, James warns us that if we are merciful, then we shall not receive mercy. Look at it with me, verse 13. For judgment without mercy, sorry, for judgment is without mercy, the one who has shown no mercy. That is, if we have no mercy in the way we treat others, then the, the cross of Christ will not apply to us. We left under the judgment of the Lord, condemned. Now, it's not like if 
showing mercy to others will make God be merciful to us. But remember, James says, real faith is faith that expresses in actions. And if you or I trust Jesus to save us, if we rely on his mercy, then, then we will be merciful to others. We will learn to honor the poor man, but the beggar who comes into our midst. We will learn to treat him as well as we treat the rich man, because we are interested in both of them, how we can serve them, not what we can get. We must learn to both of them, because both are our neighbors, whom God has called us to love. We will care for the fathers and the weak, for those without but if we have not been merciful to others, then we have not tasted the mercy. If we are not merciful, we show we are not the children of us. So James says in verse speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Interesting, the law of liberty. The law of liberty tells us that we are liberated, we are free from the law as, as a means of getting right with God. No longer under the obligations of the old covenant. The law of liberty tells us that we're forgiven, we're made right with God through Jesus and his death on our behalf. The law of liberty tells us that God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. Inherit the kingdom he has promised to those who love him. The law of liberty tells us that we are to love our neighbor as we have been loved by Christ. That we really trust in God. We test whether we really trust in God, but how we treat those around us. James commands us to speak and to act as those who will be judged by this. Watch our words. Watch our actions. We don't put people down on the basis of our good opinions. We do not act in partiality. is Partiality is serious. Might you or I be tempted to show partiality? Or be tempted to judge others? Well, maybe we are tempted to look at their clothes, their cars. Maybe we're tempted to judge people by their race, nationality. Judge people by their personality. Fail to make an effort with people whom the world would consider as social distance. If you're a welcomer for Russia, you show partiality to those outsiders who come into church. And we have our greeting time. You meet someone you don't know well. Will you, will you judge them by their outward appearance, by their race, their socioeconomic background, or the level of education, or how high up they are on the food chain of their career? We judge each other that way. Or will we show, or will we show warmth? Ah. How do we choose leaders? Do we look for godliness, humility before God's word, willingness to serve? Do we place a higher value on charisma, up, attractiveness, and social status, the kinds of things the world's not interested in? What about the poor? Will we treat poor people respectfully, without condescension, looking down on them? Will we be merciful and kind to those in need? The 
greatest need of people, of course, to hear the gospel. The gospel ministry must be our priority, but, but those transformed by the gospel, who have experienced God's mercy, will be loving and courteous and generous to the poor. Let's not preaching a social gospel, undermining evangelism, not changing or detracting from our mission to take the gospel to the world. That's it's just being godly. It's just the result of the gospel bearing fruit in our lives. All these things that James reminds us this morning, they all summarize in his first verse. Chapter 2, verse 1. Show no partiality. Which also, by the way, can be reverse partiality. Sometimes we can treat the poor person better than the rich person for other reasons. Show no as you hold the faith in our Lord Christ, the Lord of God. See, that's the most compelling reason of why favoritism or, or impartiality is inappropriate. Because we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Remember Jesus, for all eternity he shared his Father's glory. And yet he humbled himself, became a man. And he showed his glory in his mercy to us on the cross. See, when you look at the cross with the eyes of the world, you see poverty, you see shame, you see pain and suffering and death, you see hopelessness, you see someone who hasn't made it, someone to be despised, a negative example, you see someone on the cross who's got nothing, no clothes, no friends, no future, someone who's cursed under judgment, who's gone as low as he can possibly go on the social scale. But when you look at the cross with the eyes of faith, when you look at the cross from God's point of view, you see something. Yes, you see pain and suffering and death. You also see forgiveness and life and reconciliation. You see love in action. A love that is, that is willing to make that ultimate sacrifice to save. You see your Savior first so that you can be blessed. See the sign, King of the Jews, and you say, That is my King of His glory is not like the glory of the world. His glory is seen in humble sacrifice. When the risen Jesus comes again, it is glory that is hidden on the cross. Be seen by all. Until then, seen by all. Friends, if our faith is in the Lord, we will see things from His point of view that all the valleys of the world turn upside down. For the glory of Jesus is not the glory of the world. What is impressive to God is not what is impressive to the world. We have to regard no one from a worldly point of view. Be consistent with us. We need to be loving and merciful to all. Ritual. As the Lord Jesus was merciful to us. And so in our lives, as on the cross, mercy and triumph over joy. Partiality is serious. Partiality is as believers in the glorious Lord Jesus, we must not show passion. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you love us. And we thank you that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we thank you for choosing us, for of no account, to be rich in faith and to inherit your kingdom. Father, please help us to see the people around us as you do, rather than the world, and to love each other without passion. Father, please make us. We ask this. Again.